and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Gemma Tetlow, the IFG's Chief Economist and today's podcast presenter. Westminster, or more importantly, Wellingborough and Kingswood, are waking up to news that, well, the kind of news that we regularly seem to wake up to at the moment. The Conservative Party has lost lots and more by-elections, which means new MPs for Labour. So it's a bad day for Rishi Sunak, and that's after a bad week of economic news for the Prime Minister as well. The UK has officially fallen into recession, Conservative backbenchers are restless, and Labour is on the attack. But it's not all good news for Labour, far from it. After last week's clumsy handling of the party's U-turn on its green spending pledge, Keir Starmer has come under fire for the selection of, and then slow rejection of, Labour's candidate in the Rochdale by-election. Labour has now withdrawn its support from Azhar Ali for apparently making anti-Semitic remarks with another parliamentary candidate, Graham Jones, suspended for the same offence. So bad weeks all around for government and opposition and politics as a whole, which means plenty for us to talk about on today's podcast. Joining me are IFG duo Catherine Haddon and Giles Wilkes. Hello both. Hi Gemma. Hi Gemma. And I'm delighted we're joined again by Chris Cook, senior reporter at the Financial Times. Hi Chris, thanks for joining us from Ireland, I think. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Let's start with the by-elections then, Giles. You keep a close eye on polls and swings and all this sort of thing. You have some lovely spreadsheets for doing these uh, (laughs) modelling. How big are these defeats and are they surprising? They are not surprising because we've seen a lot of them in the last year or two. Although if you looked at the whole parliament, it's been an incredibly surprising parliament. You've got to remember that, what is it, just two, three years ago, uh, Hartlepool was the biggest swing towards the government in a by-election. And now we've had almost the biggest swing ever away from the government um, in in the Wellingburg case. So yeah, I mean, if you translated these into a general election, there would be an absolute bloodbath. I mean, the reason I do these spreadsheet models is just to demonstrate how volatile our system is. Once the Conservatives start dropping below 25%, their seats just start evaporating. And the sort of swing we saw today would be consistent with the Conservatives getting 25 or lower on a national poll. So, yeah, I mean, really spectacular results. No doubt very, very worried faces at CCHQ. I mean, obviously, really idiosyncratic conditions in Wellingborough in particular. Peter Bone was accused. He obviously denies everything of all sorts of impropriety. And in a kind of quite brazen move, they put his current partner in as the candidate. This is not the sort of thing that's likely to work very well with a disgruntled um, electorate that's already regards the government as slightly scandal ridden. So it might well be that the swing in Wellingborough itself is an exaggeration of the broader national picture. But uh, my goodness, this is a really difficult result to spin well. And it looks very, very poor for the Conservatives now. Yes, the feeling seemed to be that Labour had to win Kingswood if it wants to be on course to win a general election. But Wellingborough was a happy bonus, although, as you say, Giles, there were perhaps some idiosyncratic features going on there. Chris, what what do you think? Do these matter? Does it tell us anything new we didn't already know about this government? There's a reasonable question, given that that we don't have very good historical time series of polling. So, you know, basically, because we have a lot of years of polling, but every few years they change in some fundamental way. So a fundamental change to the way that we polled in 1992, the fundamental changes to the way that we polled in 2015. Our capacity for judging whether polling is in the right place is really limited, The particularly in the context of falling response rate for pollsters. And at the same time, we've seen some very high volatility elections recently, particularly 2017, which is sort of a wildly out of scale, out of frame sort of movement that happened during that that campaign. So I think it's reasonable to say 
they're useful for checking whether polls are in the right place and whether the very large labor leads that we've seen recently are being borne out. They're also useful for working out whether the Reform Party, the former Brexit Party, is a real thing or if it's just a thing that people say to pollsters because they've the pollsters maybe are engaging a slightly wonky um, panel. And I think we've got one very clear answer on Labour, which is that, yeah, it looks like the poll's in the right place, roughly speaking, that there's a huge stonking Labour lead. They're smashing places like Wellingborough shouldn't be falling unless by these margins, unless um, things really are bad for the Tories, as the polls say. And this is the first time when we've seen the Reform Party kind of turn up in any real numbers at a by-election, which is, so we, we have a sort of half answer on the Reform Party. The Reform Party may still be a mirage, it may still disappear, particularly because they don't have a general election machine. So they may be swamped in a when they're fighting on more than one front. But this is the first by-election where we've seen them turn up and you know, take, take double digits uh, anywhere. I mean, in Kingswood, if you added together the Tory vote and the reform vote, they would have beaten Labour. And some Tories seem to be sort of trying to push that line. Is that the right way to think about it? Or is that a bit too simplistic to think these are all disgruntled Tory voters? I think it is too simplistic to think of it in those terms. You can't assume one's a substitute for the other. There's a reason they're not voting for the Conservative Party that may be quite profound. They just aren't also voting for the Labour Party. And if you're in a situation where you're trying to hold a previously Tory seat and you can't squeeze the reform voters, this is sort of quite good scenarios for the Tories to, to hold down their votes. That's a reason to be slightly bullish, if you like, on reform, which is to say that by elections, you probably would expect the big existing parties to be able to beat up reform a bit and maybe the fact these are two quite weird by-elections where the Kingswood isn't going to be fought at the next general election because the seat's being abolished so it got under under four if you like and in Wellingborough yeah this very weird choice of candidates in particular basically meant that the the Tories didn't really turn up as well so maybe there's a story here as well about whether if there's a, a seat that's that's going to survive that comes up next and there isn't sort of weird localness, a uh, weird local stuff like in Rochdale, which is uh, the week after next. We'll see reform get pushed down again by a proper third party squeeze. Giles, on that sort of third party, um, as our one time Lib Dem, were, were they part of this by-election story? No, they were, they were um, entirely absent and their vote was squeezed. I mean, this is one of the intriguing questions for us trying to work out tactical voting going into the next election, which might be a really significant factor. Uh, the voters knew that the Lib Dems didn't stand a chance in either of these seats. And therefore, the ones that turned out, if I want to cast a vote, I'm going to cast probably for Labour. So we saw an, a, a little precursor of what might well happen in the general election, which is voters being motivated by one thing, which is removing the government, which doesn't normally happen. We had all sorts of different motives in 2019, pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit, pro-anti-government, hatred of Corbyn and all these things. This is much more of a kind of unipolar moment in that you either believe in keeping this government in, in which case you're about 25% of the population, or or you're, you've got some way of you're wanting to attack them. And if that tendency is sensitive to what works against the Conservatives across the country, that might mean an extra 20 or 30 losses as voters sort of go that way. So Lib Dem votes are being squeezed quite badly. And because since 2019, it's really the Labour vote that surged, it is quite worrying for the Lib Dems because it might just feel that the answer in so many places is if you want to beat the Tories, you've got to go for Labour. Um, They're going to have to really concentrate their effort where they can demonstrably prove that they are an effective vote. Kath, we're recording this on Friday morning. How ugly do you think this weekend could get for Rishi Sunak? I think it is going to be bad, but it is kind of more of the same. And, you know, you've sort of just been hearing that. 
It's a by-election. The Prime Minister at the moment is going with the, oh, midterm elections are always bad. It's not midterm, it's an election year. So I don't think that line is going to hold up. The other thing they can turn to is turnout, which is low. It often is in by-elections. Conservative voters not showing up. So that might be something that they try to cling to. But I think the big issue for him is just the consistency of these by-election results. We now just expect it. There wasn't even any expectation management before this by-election where, you know, you see one party coming out and saying, oh, it's really tight. We're not sure we can win this. And another party sort of saying, oh, yeah, we think we've definitely lost this to try and manage all of that because it just seemed like a foregone conclusion. It would have been a massive upset if this major swing to Labour had not happened. So that in itself is is a problem for them. I've already seen one tweet, you know, Tim Montgomery coming out this morning saying that it's all over and you need to have the general election as soon as possible. I suspect more of that mood music behind the scenes is going to increase on Rishi Sunak. We're obviously going to talk about some of the other bad news that he's been dealing with this week. It's not even sort of drip, drip, drip if this is a, you know, hole in the roof that is cascading water in. It's an ongoing problem. It's not changed anything dramatically towards that problem, but it is just how long this is sustainable for him when he is fighting off, as we've seen in recent weeks, attacks from others in his party, some wanting a leadership change, obviously others now wanting a general election, and that's not going to change anytime soon. They've got lots of tactical dilemmas now, the government. One of them is, should they face reform or should they face Labour? I mean, any analysis will say a vote lost to Labour is a much more dangerous vote because it's much more likely to tip your likely, the likely winner over into winning a seat. But the other really interesting one is where do they put their effort in terms of protecting seats? If they now assume that they are going to lose everything from 350 down to 100, 250, do they start trying to protect the seats that are sort of one from 100 to 250, which is a really demoralising thing to do, which is to go to seats that look like they're incredibly safe and say, we need to put resources in there. And you, by the way, who only have a 7,000 majority, you're toast, so we're not even yeah. dealing with you. What I don't know enough is how much those resourcing decisions make a difference on the day. But if boots on the ground and enthusiasm and young activists and everything make a difference, where do you put them if you're the Conservatives? Do you try to make sure there is a party? in yeah. 2026. Yeah, and and also on people. I mean, we the other thing that we've seen, uh, again, not quite a drip, more a cascade, is Conservatives standing down at the next election. And, you know, we hear that they've been told to stagger these so that they don't all come in at one big, another water metaphor avalanche. But there is also that question of who is going to be fighting for their seats at the next general election and which of the major figures will want that support because... You know, some big figures are on that that marginal line. I saw something else this week looking at the um, uh, MRP poll from a while back saying that actually the red wall is already lost and you should be focusing on the blue wall uh, and the fight against the, the Lib Dem, so not even Labour or reform. They're all big tactical questions that the government's got to think about. And, and the important point is that you know, as they're approaching the general election, it's about how you're trying to use what you're doing in government to craft the political environment in which the election will be fought. And they have been doing that thus far on what appears to be a sort of 2019 model, whereas if actually they, they're looking at targeting different seats, trying to save different seats, are they really picking the right issues to, you know, give that kind of environment to, to the election? Should they be focusing on woke issues or should they be focusing on other aspects, public services or, or what? There's that whole question about how they're framing it. I think they're, they're quite a, um, 
one of the sort of strategic problems of political parties is they never think about the election after next. They're always broke because they're always throwing every kitchen sink at every election. And they always think they always want to roll the dice to try and win this time, because fundamentally, if you lose this time, you and your mates who are making the decisions are going to be replaced. The new leader will not keep you on. There's never a future orientation. And so I think they're continually striving for a strategy that will that will roll the dice for them on this stuff. So they're trying to raise the salience of immigration, which is quite a high salience issue already, as it happens, because they think that's an area where they can win and they can maybe put the sort of band back together. But the idea that they can abandon the red wall and sort of try and save a big Tory minority is one that I just don't think they is sort of in the brains of the kind of people who do this stuff. I also think it's worth sort of thinking about the things they're not talking about at all, particularly healthcare. It's worth thinking about the things they're not talking about at all. So healthcare is the really big one. I'm really struck by the fact that about 18 months, two years ago, we were continually hearing sort of anecdotes, basically, through family and through friends about the disaster of the NHS. And it's just a thing no one's talking about at the moment, because it's sort of so priced in, it's so deeply in the water. The crisis is so far over there, you know, our heads. It's priced in, there's no way back. And they're not trying to fix this, they're not trying to talk it back. The economy, the second biggest, or first, I think health and uh, the, the economy are the two biggest issues on the YouGov issue tracker at the moment, with immigration and third. They don't really have a story to tell on the economy either. I'm sure we'll get onto that. They just don't, they're just not addressing the, the central issues that, that are facing voters. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, Chris, because there, there was a story actually in the Financial Times yesterday, wasn't there, about rumours, suggestions that the budget may do something of the sort of cutting taxes while penciling in even more tight spending numbers, which does seem like a very short-term strategy of not worrying too much about how you actually deal with that after an election. It's very election-focused. But Kath, I want to go back to the point you were making about sort of discontent within the Tory party. At this stage, do you think there's any chance that they will try and replace Rishi Sunak or any candidate who really thinks they can turn things around radically? After the last four years, I never say never. <laughs> the ability of our politicians to do what years ago seemed to be crazy, um, should be priced in. I think it's a massive problem for them if they make moves in that direction. I mean, the two options, if it starts to look like some kind of leadership coup is happening, is that it drives Rishi Sunak to call the election sooner. You could argue that, well, what's in his favour to do that? Why would you, as a prime minister, if you think you're going to lose the election, just want to go into it sooner and, and do so? But... You know, it might be that thinking this isn't good for the country. It might be thinking this isn't going to help the party anymore. It could just be, you know, damn them all to hell. I'm going to go for it. The problem is if they have a leadership contest, they kind of need to go for a general election anyway. Yes, constitutionally, you can change your prime minister and it appears you can keep changing it. But there just becomes a point at which it is untenable to be saying that, yes, we can command confidence, but apparently we can't hold together a premiership, you know, and you have to go to the electorate and, and ask them, you know, what is their, their opinion of you as a political party? So I just think that the calls then for a general election will be massive. So all you would be doing is bringing it on. You might hope that you suddenly get some kind of bounce of a, a new leader. All of the polling seems to suggest that this is a reaction against the Conservatives. 
you know, there doesn't appear to be anything. Yes, there might be particular individuals whose polling rating is better than Rishi Sunak, but the likelihood is that that's just because they're not the prime minister. And if they became the prime minister, you know, they would be pulled down by the same anchor. It doesn't seem like that's a viable option for them to suddenly turn their fortunes around. If if you had another two years, then yes, maybe, you know, you could try and rebuild again. But again, after three prime ministers in two years, it's just not a tenable option for changing the prime minister and trying to rebuild again when you've got to have a general election this year or very early next year. Let's dig a bit deeper then into the economic figures we got this week. Giles, what did we learn? The inflation figures were good. So the inflation, everyone was saying we're going to see an uptick in inflation because we can predict this or that happening with energy prices. And a lot about the inflation figures are always predictable from that point of view. You have 11 months already. You've only got one to go. Uh, and they, they were actually better. And there wasn't an uptick. And that that one of the of Rishi Sunak's five pledges that he's achieving is still being achieved. And, and, and that's very important because inflation is arguably the most unpopular economic phenomenon you can possibly have. So inflation is down still at 4% down twice at the, the actual um, mandated target. But, you know, that's still a story that's maintained. Now, GDP figures came out. They're very backward looking, remember, it's describing the last quarter of 2023. But they showed a contraction of 0.3%, which was worse than a lot of gloomy predictions already had. And that means the word recession can be used by technicians here saying this is formally a recession. Actually, at first, my reaction was to go, you know, what's the difference between minus 0.1 and plus 0.1? You know, the zero number is given too much credence by the media. But then when you looked at some of the longer term trends, the fact that it looked like every quarter under Rishi Sunak, the economy has uh, has shrunk in per capita terms, which is what leads to our long term prosperity. It's a pretty poor story. Even though they've got reasonable excuses, which was they inherited a lot of inflation, they realised that had to be their number one priority. That means running the economy more slowly than it perhaps could go. You've got to err on the side of slow rather than fast. And so the Bank of England has done what they've asked it to do, which is to slow the economy in such a way that there's no doubt that inflation will be wrung out of the system. And that means aiming low. And as a result, we're having a, a pretty rubbish year. And also the ultimate cause of it, the, 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 you know, the energy price hit that we received two years ago, I can't emphasize enough how big a hit that was. It's the sort of thing that does normally produce a bit of a crisis in the economy. So Tory um, economic strategists will feel very hard done by for what they had to handle here. But the net result is that he set himself a really, really easy target. I'm going to grow the economy. And now he has the word recession thrown back at him. It's a pretty grim story. And I don't think there's enough time to really turn that around. And yet, at the same time, we're still hearing about tax cuts. I mean, I guess some would say that would be the answer that would help to stimulate growth. I mean, it's really, I mean, this, it does, everything always reminds me of autumn 2022, where they've got to make up their mind what the target is. If you want to increase the amount of cash spending in the economy by giving people more money in their wallets, you can, but you're just pushing the opposite direction to where the Bank of England is pulling. The Bank of England needs the amount of cash circulating in the economy to be growing at around 4 or 5% a year to be reasonably confident that inflation is not getting out of the way. If the government said, hey, let's pump some more money in and make people feel better, they just mean the interest rates are going to remain higher for longer. So it's just a distributional thing and a messaging and a political thing. So I, I thoroughly deplore that, not just on those macro terms, but also for reasons that are best explored by reading 
the IFG's performance monitor. Our public services are so depleted in so many ways that surely that has to be the priority. And announcing tax cuts before you worked out how to fund social care, healthcare, the prison system, the defence budget and all sorts of other things is just so irresponsible. One of Rishi Sunak's other five pledges is getting debt down. I mean, are tax cuts consistent with that? Well, I mean, we have funny fiscal rules, which is why I'm so pleased that colleagues of ours are writing about them and looking into some of the weirdness that comes from them. The The rule is that the debt should be forecast to be falling at the five-year horizon. Is that right? So what happens now to the tax take might not affect the difference between year four and year five. So they might feel that they've got away with it. But um, it certainly means that the state has fewer resources. So any common sense understanding of fiscal responsibility with, say, tax cuts, when debt is quite high and not exactly fully under control, are in a responsible line. But they, they, yeah, they might get away with it and the OBR might sulkily say you've hit your rules. But the OBR might also want to repeat some of the messages it's been making about the spending side of those accounts being worse than fiction. Labour's made a big play of fighting the next election on the economy, but do you think they're being completely honest with the electorate? No, not really, because the... I mean, no no one believes if the Conservative Party were somehow re-elected this year that their fiscal plans for spending in particular um, are ever going to be realised. So they envisage another basically huge round of, of austerity for the public services. It's the only way to make their numbers add up. They've not told us where this money is coming from. No one believes they're really serious about it. The point of it is to create a sort of wedge with Labour to show they're the fiscally responsible people who are willing to take the tough decisions and Labour are terrible and... We'll just burn your burn your taxes in a skip outside your house, but Labour sort of has been sort of caught by it, right? Labour is is going along with the idea that there is a sort of plausible path where you can maintain tight grip on things, but lots of it's kind of vibes based. Like they they've got rid of their their twenty eight billion pound green pledges because they think it's not consistent with their sort of fiscal rules, but actually you all of these things are discretionary, right? You can raise taxes, keep fiscal rules in check you know they've they've now said they don't want to raise some particular big hitting headline rates again watch like watch the careful wording on headline i think they talk about rates rather than but they're not talking about thresholds and all the other things you can do with taxes to raise them my fundamental belief in all this stuff is spending is obviously going to rise whoever is in government after the next election because the public services are if not collapsing collapsed so the Local government is in a, is disastrous. Um, the prisons are disastrous. I wrote this week in the FT about defence spending, which I think is underappreciated as a as a real problem. Um, we have an enormous rising risk, basically geopolitically at the moment, in continental Europe as a consequence of Russia's rearmament. We are going to have to pay to fix our armed forces. That's another thing on the list. Hospitals are a sort of unending disaster. The fact that only 14 years ago, 98% of people could go to an A&E and be seen and dealt with within four hours feels like a fantasy. Service levels, which you know we've all experienced, have become wildly rare. They're just going to have to put more money in. And they, they can hint and huff and puff about how they don't want to raise particular taxes and they want to keep their sort of things tight and everything else. But they're going to have to spend more. Everyone's going to have to spend more. And I just don't believe you can elect a Labour Party after 14 or 15 years into this environment and they won't spend a lot more. Um, they've got no choice.
I completely agree that it's very much a vibes-based um, positioning at the moment. Obviously, Labour have decided that they don't want any, you know, room to be able to critique them at the moment on their um, fiscal policy. Uh, so they're tacking to the government. The the thing that they're trying to do on a vibes-based point, but trying not to do it too much, is basically saying, well, we'll have to see when we get in. So I guess it's just like, well, when we've opened the books up and then you're like, oh, my God, it's terrible. I didn't know it was going to be this terrible, which is doing a disservice to the public. You know, yes, perhaps there is a certain hint coming from them that there certainly was in Starmer's speech at the party conference that things are going to take a long time to fix. That's, you know, the the situation that public finances are in, the situation that the economy is in, is going to take a while to fix. But I still think it's going to be a bit of a shock post-election if, you know, if if that expectation management isn't more candidly expressed. But it's just because we've just been talking about for Labour, the prospect of winning this general election, the stakes are so high. And so they're not doing anything that undermines that campaign period, even if it then means that actually you're not really exploring what it's going to be like to govern uh, and what the problems are really going to be like. And it's going to be harder and harder for them to to hold that line because more and more media are going to be saying, but how are you going to do that? Like, especially once post-budget, we we start talking about spending reviews and, you know, what those cuts really mean for departments, because the areas ring-fenced mean real-terms cuts to a series of departments and what that looks like in practice. So I think it's just going to get harder over the course of the year to keep that line. Kath, as we approach the election, <coughs> governing parties usually have some advantages, not least being having more of a chance to set the news agenda. But Sunak seems to be struggling with that so far this year. Partly it's the old adage that, you know, once you're going down, it, it, pretty much everything gets interpreted badly. And, uh, you know, for a, a party that's just got in or a party that's doing well in the polls, there's a bit more sympathy shown to this thing's gone bad. For Sunak, you know, it's just sort of heaps problem upon problem. So it is it is hard for them to get out of that. But you add into that just the mishandling of all sorts of issues. We, we talked about it last week, the handshake and bets with Piers Morgan, the PMQ's attack that was inappropriate and just led to days of coverage about should he apologise or not. It, it's those kind of mishandling. But I think now that we're, you know, we're well into February, some in his party are starting to look at the whole approach of how they started the year and whether they've picked the right issues to try and set the agenda. They must have plans for what they want to do around March. You know, at first, everyone was saying, oh, early budget, that must mean that they're going for a May general election. There was talk of tax cuts. And then suddenly Jeremy Hunt was sort of playing down the likelihood of any tax cuts. So I can imagine that it's just very confusing. What is the strategy inside number 10? Probably the truth is that like any number to embattled number 10, they're just struggling. They're in the bunker. They've got different voices arguing with each other about what they should do. People are making, you know, silly mistakes like the PMQ's joke you can even call it that um and you know it just heaps problem on to problem and it, it eventually it all just sits with the prime minister and it is about the prime minister's handling of it so pretty sure it's not the start of the year that they wanted uh, i'm sure they gamed a different way in which it would all happen we're about to talk to, about it but the one thing that they might point to is that they were always hoping for something might turn up which might be that the labor party you know dig themselves into their own hole and 
things turn around, but it just doesn't seem like there's any signs of it thus far. And all the talk at the beginning of the Sunak Premiership about, well, they might want to he- you know hold on until the economy starts to improve, as Giles has just set out, it's just, you know, even the modicums of, of good news just aren't going to make the difference at this stage. It's not just been a, a bad start to the year for Sinek. Labour have also had their challenges. So let's like to look a bit more at their sort of the bad fortnight they're coming off the back of. After being selected as Labour's candidate for the Rochdale by-election, Azar Ali found himself making the wrong type of headlines after a recording emerged of him claiming that Israel had allowed the 7th October attacks by Hamas as a pretext to invade Gaza. Labour initially stood by Ali before then withdrawing their support. Kath, Labour didn't handle this well, did they? It's the age-old adage, um, you know, if if you're facing such a problem, you, you know you're going to have to move to a particular position, move to it as quickly as possible. So if you're going to have to sack somebody or, you know, remove them from the Labour Party, remove your backing from them as a, at a by-election in this case, do it as quickly as possible because otherwise you're just forced to it anyway. The truth is, though, that is a very much a Westminster watcher kind of positioning. And yes, within, you know, the media, Westminster and so forth, there's been a lot of criticism of, should they have gone quicker earlier? Um, you know, should they have anticipated that the mail would have a second story? Because Azarali came out with a very early apology uh, after the initial story, uh, but then another story came out. I think it's fair to criticise for all of that. I think all political parties handle issues around backing for their candidates when news about them arises, whether it is stuff like this, whether it is, you know, the kind of stuff that hits Peter Bone, abuse or harassment or, you know, sexual misconduct or, or anything like that. We have seen in recent years that party's management of their candidates and their MPs is something that they struggle with. And uh, leadership, certainly within the Labour Party, has struggled on issues of anti-Semitism for some years. That said, it's worth remembering that for the vast majority of the public, they probably don't watch it that closely. And it's interesting, the Times have got a YouGov survey out today, which is the first one that I've seen that's really sort of tackling what, where is, you know, how is Labour viewed after the Rochdale incident of the last week? And actually, it shows that I think they've got like 9% of people understood what the issue was, like knew about the Rochdale incident. 32% had slightly heard, but 59% had barely heard of it or heard nothing at all. So the vast majority of the public aren't really watching this issue. But as you say, it does mean that there won't be a Labour candidate in that Rochdale by-election. Is that not letting down at least some people in Rochdale who would have wanted to vote their, cast their vote that way? It is, but unfortunately, that's the way our our system works, that you then cannot sort of throw in a last minute candidate. And again, maybe that is something that we should reflect on about how we do selection of candidates and run by-elections and campaigns and allow people to stand. It is obviously, you know, whoever is elected, it's going to be up until the general election and then one presumes that Labour will field a new candidate. It's also worth mentioning that uh, one of the candidates that was rejected by the local constituency was Paul Ward, the iJournalist. So one presumes that he might be able to stand for selection again. But we also don't know what uh, Azar Ali's uh, local support is like. 
you know, he's obviously having shifting his campaign. He did have a load of leaflets going out that still had the support of key Labour figures like Andy Burnham. But now he is shifting himself away from a Labour Party support and being more critical of Keir Starmer. Uh, it could be that he stands as an independent for a year. It could be that, you know, the public end up liking him. Who knows where it ends up going? So it is a bit of a nightmare, yes, for the Labour Party. Chris, does this mean that this by-election in a couple of weeks' time is not really going to tell us anything of value when trying to draw a broader picture? Yeah, to go back to my sort of thoughts about by-elections, they're useful for working out whether the, I mean, the, the state of the art for for working out what public opinion is, is a public opinion survey, fundamentally, at a national level. By-elections are weird. They attract a weird group. But what they might be able to tell you is if your sample is sort of wildly, wildly wrong. Uh, in this case, they're not going to be able to do that. They would be they would struggle anyway because George Galloway is standing, so the Labour Party might have a weird split in it. It has unusual local demographics uh, that aren't typical. So what we would learn from Rochdale was always going to be the least interesting of the three of these by-elections, but it's particularly sort of uninteresting now. I think that this podcast, there's a theme coming out of it, which is we're taking a lot of words to say that, in the words of Theresa May, nothing has changed in the last week. The only thing that the Rochdale situation and the £28 Labour eventually moving away from that figure in terms of their green energy proposals it will give that the Conservatives, as I said earlier, that little bit of hope of, oh, but Labour could still screw up. You know, maybe there's hope for us. Starmer is still not particularly popular. Maybe they'll hope that something might turn up that might still stay in their minds. So the only thing that I think it will have done is slightly galvanise parts of the Conservative Party or potentially parts of the, the people around the Prime Minister. I don't think it's made one iota of difference in the, in the wider country. Charles, just to quickly go back to the Rochdale by-election then, what do you think is the worst outcome for Labour? For Ali to be elected as a non-Labour MP or for George Galloway to be returning to the House of Commons? It's really, really hard. And in a way, I would want them to just have the words no comment written in like 50-foot-high letters outside Labour HQ. That We didn't have a candidate in this election and we look forward to the general election where we will present somebody. As, as you, the difficulty of your question makes clear, is there's no really good one. I would say it's better for them to have Galloway in there because then they don't have the awkward position of the guy that they selected but then don't stand behind coming into the House and, put, and presenting an ambiguous problem for them. Whereas Galloway, they can be thoroughly opposed to. He's revolting to Labour on a lot of on a, on a lot of different measures, and they can have an unambiguous attitude towards him. The ambiguity of somebody who's served the Labour Party for a long time as a big local character in his neck of the woods and was perfectly acceptable to them until about a week ago, being hanging around. That's much worse. So, in a funny way, I, want, I wonder if they just kind of want the Workers' Party to notch one up here and then stop thinking about it. So we've talked a lot about domestic issues uh, inevitably on this podcast, but Chris, just quickly to turn to foreign affairs, do you think that's going to play a big role in the election campaign? Well, there are two big foreign affairs issues I think will will come to bear. One is going to be Europe, right? So we haven't yet had the cries that, that Keir Starmer, a notorious human rights lawyer, is secretly planning with his cabal of North London lefties to take us back into the European Union but I am sure we're going to that's going to that's going to come but actually the the thing I wrote about this week was the 
rising concern from across NATO about what is happening uh, in Russia. It's the Munich Security Conference starting um, basically as we record, which is a which is like Davos but for for soldiers. There's been a series of warnings about about what's going on in Russia at the moment. The possibility of us having to be prepared for effectively a cold uh, return to to the, the 1950s. I think which which Soviet Union would we be facing is really troubling. We have lots of technological advantages and huge economic advantages, but we don't have their capacity to simply be single-minded about about conflict. And that makes them very troubling. And we have to get ready. We have to pay pay our insurance premium, which means, I'm afraid, spending more in the army. Chris, I seem to remember on a previous uh, episode of Inside Briefing, you expressed some quite strong views about David Cameron. What, What do you make of his performance so far as Foreign Secretary? So the good thing about David Cameron as Foreign Secretary is he doesn't have a budget. So he's been kept away from that. Like someone has given him like a, you know, guardrails. He was out this week in DC, basically calling on, and he did something quite good, I thought, which he went to the Republicans and said, like, guys, it's the 30s, right? To the point in Russia, it's the 30s. Like this is, we, you understand what this is. You, you know what role you get to play in all this stuff. And it's not a small thing, rather, um, for a Tory leader to go and basically start browbeating Republicans like that and to be absolutely clear about which side of the line he's on and, you know, which is not theirs. Lots of Tories have this sort of slightly um, weird and unreciprocated feeling they have to be, like, nice to other right-wingers around the world. And he's breached that. So actually, he's had quite a good week. He is fundamentally the father of the decline of the Conservative Party, as we sort of see it today. Like, the denuding of the public sphere the um, problems in the health service, the problems in defence, they all come back to him. Whatever he does, he's not going to get over the fact that he accidentally took us out of the European Union. It's really hard to, to come up with something that will that will undo that. I mean, even if you think leaving the EU is good, he didn't think that. He did it accidentally. It's very hard to sort of get over that. Um, it'd be quite a surprising turn for him to suddenly start to take us back in the next, like, six months. Unfortunately, that is now the end of this week's podcast episode. Thank you to Kath Haddon, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Chris Cook. Thank you for joining us. Thank you also for listening to this episode. You can find all our podcasts, including our brilliant new six-part series, Preparing for Power, at Acast, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. There's lots of exciting new content at our website as well, where you can sign up to all our events, including one with Therese Coffee coming up who will be looking back on her nine years in government serving four different prime ministers and a discussion of manifestos and a closer look at mission-driven government. Have a great weekend, everyone.